Hello and welcome to the Helping Organisations Thrive podcast. This is your host, Julian Roberts. This podcast is to provide leaders with insights, discussions and robust strategies to help their companies thrive in these challenging times. We will be interviewing business leaders, owners and experts in the field of business resilience. Uh, welcome to Helping Organisations Thrive. Uh, today, I have the great pleasure of uh, Alan Hunkins. Uh, welcome, Alan. Thank you so much, Julian. I'm really excited to be here with you today. Yeah, no, I'm really good to, to have you on as well. And um, I'm just going to tell the audience a little bit about you. Uh, and I'm sure that will all come out as we talk as well uh, in, the, in the conversation. So you're the CEO of Hunkins Leadership Group, uh, which is all about strategic consulting in human performance improvement problem solving and innovation. Uh, you're a speaker, consultant, trainer and coach, and you've had over sort of, 20 years in your career as led sort of 2000 groups in 25 countries, which is quite incredible really. And um, you've worked with the likes of Walmart, Pfizer, um, State Farm Insurance, IBM, General Motors, just to name a few big sort of uh, uh, businesses you've worked with there. And you are a best-selling author uh, which I'm sure we will share a little bit of that today, a book called Cracking the Leadership Code, Three Secrets to Building Strong Leaders. And you're also a TEDx speaker. So wealth of experience. And, and I, I do thank you for, for coming on because I, 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 I love having people with this uh, level of experience because if nothing else, I will learn a lot from you today. <laughs> so yeah, that's where we are. Um, but before we go into that, I want to really ask you, um, what do you love about what you do? Oh, um, what I love about what I do is that every day I get to live my mission. So I'm a really clear, I'm a big believer that what leaders do is they make their implicit assumptions explicit. And what better place to start than being really explicit about what one's life mission is. So my life mission is to create a vibrant and alive world by kindling the fire of brilliance in people. So I get to do that. And what lights me up more than anything else is helping people to realize their potential and start to make strides towards it and start to achieve things that they didn't think were possible. So that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. And the fact that I get to do this and I get paid to do this too, what a bonus. So that's what gets me excited and why I'm Brilliant. thrilled, thrilled to do what I, I do. I can see it, it really, it, it gets you energized. Your energy just started to lift as you shared that uh, mission statement. Yeah. What, what, got, what got you to that? I mean, when did that happen? When did you get that realization of like, wow, this is what I'm here for? Well, surprisingly, maybe it happened pretty early on for me when I say that professionally. Uh, it happens clearly when I was 27 years old. And I'll give you a little preface on this to get there. So, you know, why would someone be really clear on their introspective mission of purpose in life at 27? Well, I had a pretty unique childhood. So I grew up in New York City. That's not unique. I was raised by a single mom, also not very unique. And my grandmother also moved in because my parents divorced. My grandmother moved in to help my mom raise my brother and I. Well, my mother and my, the part where it gets unique is the fact that my mother and my grandmother are both survivors of the Holocaust. So they were in Belgium. The, my grandmother and her husband were Polish Jews who emigrated to Belgium. And then when the Nazis invaded, my mother, who was seven at the time, was put into hiding and was hidden through the Belgian underground for three years and didn't see her mom 
moved from place to place. She was given a false name, had her hair dyed blonde, uh, moved into convents. I mean, kind of like the diary of Anne Frank. That was Mm. my mother's life for three years. And then she was reunited with her mother. So I share all this because as you can imagine, these were my primary caretakers, my parents, who had a very different worldview than, let's say, my friends in New York City public schools growing up in the 1970s. And so what I quickly became attuned to leaders, and in this case, my family leaders, leaders create the vibe in which everyone around them either survives or thrives. And that really got me interested in this. And the other thing is kind of when I get to be 26 years old, after dabbling in psychology and theater and Buddhist studies and all kinds of introspective things, trying to figure out, I guess you could call it man's search for meaning, to borrow from Viktor Frankl, is I went on a personal development weekend workshop where we did a mission statement process or mission process. And it was then that I realized that what I wanted to do was create a vibrant and alive world by kindling the fire of brilliance in people because suddenly I was in this environment that felt so liberating and empowering. I just Mm -hmm. knew I wanted more of that. So I started volunteering for that organization and learning as much as I could from the people around me with no expectation of, this is going to lead to becoming a best-selling author or anything. It was just the work meant so much to me. So that's why I got on this path when I did. And so I feel very lucky to have gotten that lesson early on. Well, clearly you had some amazing role models uh, with your your mum and your grandma. That's, that's incredible, which obviously yes. inspired you. And it's interesting, isn't it, how when we know our purpose, we know our why, how you would have to worry about the financial piece. It's not about that. It's actually that's the, the purpose that just drives you and will get you to the places where you want to get to and how you want to do it. And it, that will keep you the motivation. It'll stir you. It'll create the passion, the creativity, the waiver for how to get out of it. And I think that's really important to know. And I think as leaders, you know, it wasn't for a number of years before I got to my clarity of what, what my sort of mission was. Um, but actually now I know it. it makes me, very focused on what I do and why I do it and and what I get excited about and what I get enjoyment out of uh, is so important. And I think for all of us, we need to get through those weekends away like you did and do a, a personal mission statement, which I always encourage a lot of my clients to get to that place of clarity. Um, now, leadership, and we're going to talk a little bit about um, uh, the science of leadership. And, and the reason why I'm fascinated, I'm, I'm a scientist by so by design or by by learning, um, I've got mm-hmm. a science background, so I'm, I'm quite fascinated and your take on that. But just before we go into, into that, um, I'd like to understand in how you would define uh, leadership. Sure. So my definition of leadership is rather broad. I would say that any time that anyone is trying to influence anyone, that could be themselves or someone else, to get anything done, that takes leadership. So at its core, it's about influence. And so you don't need a title to be a leader. And if you look at that very broad definition, it means that every single one of us is leading every day. And if not anyone else, we are leading ourselves. And how do we choose to show up? That's the key. And so easier said than done. And I'm sure we'll get into that in the conversation. It's very easy to say, isn't it? Yes. I think you made a valid point that I think where people do forget is that leading ourselves. And I think that's a good place to start. So 
you know, if I say, tell me more about the sort of the science behind leadership, where, where this sort of evidence and, and sort of sort of things that will make us think, actually, there's something in this a bit more we can sort of put our hands on and be more tangible about. Sure. Well, I think a good place to start with the science is just to look at some of the global data around how people perceive leaders. So, you know, leadership at its core, it is a relationship between two people and a leader and someone who chooses to follow. So global data has shown over the years, and I'll use one of the studies that comes out of this, is that on average, about 23% of people think their leaders lead well. And only about 31% think their leaders communicate well, and less than half, about 49% of people trust their leaders in large organizations around the world. There's different studies. So I share all this as preface. It's quite shocking numbers there, isn't it, really? <laughs> they are all shocking numbers. So what the, and the numbers have been in, these, in this ballpark for decades. So what this tells me is there's a huge gap between what people intend and how they are perceived. And here's, I think, the nature the origin of the problem. Most people who wind up in leadership roles got there because they were doers. They were high achieving doers who got stuff done. And someone said, hey, Julian, you're a really good salesman. Let's make you the sales manager. Now, there's a huge difference between being a high performer, the salesman, mm -hmm. and facilitating high performance in the team of salespeople. And that gap can't be closed by just doing what you did so well. It's a completely different skill set. And, you know, much in the way you were talking earlier about many people don't discover their mission, a lot of leaders never hit that moment of insight, that wake-up call of going, gosh, you know, the way I'm doing this maybe isn't so good. I need to change. Because what feeds into this is you're the leader. You've got the job, you've got the paycheck, you've got the position, you have the power. And how many people that you lead have the courage to speak up and say, Julian, actually, you're a lousy communicator. I don't trust you. And I think you're basically bad because doing so in most hierarchical settings is a massive career limiting move. Mm. So which means we, to borrow a quote from Daniel Kahneman, what we do is we stay blind to our own blindness. And so we perpetuate these really poor role models of leadership. And we basically continue leading the way the people that led us did, because that's how we learn. We learn through copied behavior, which means most of us, and again, if it's only 23% are leading well, the majority, 77% of us, are basically leading out of an inherited leadership legacy that has its roots in the industrial age, where at the time, and the, you know, the father of the field of management, Frederick Winslow Taylor, and if you read his book, Principles of Scientific Management, he gets into this. At the time, the thinking was there's management or leaders who do all the thinking, they're the brains, and then there's the brawn, where literally it was, and, and this is what he says. He says in his book, the ideal workman would be so stupid and phlegmatic that he more nearly resembled in his mental makeup the ox than any other type. So the idea is you're a beast of burden. Literally, that's what you are. You know, and Henry Ford said it well as well. You know, Henry Ford was a disciple of Taylor's and he said, why is it every time I want a pair of hands, they come with a brain attached, right? So this was the mindset. Basically, I'm the leader and I tell you what to do and you're the labor and you shut up and you do it. I mean, I don't mean to be blunt, but that's the mindset. And do you, do you think, that's, from. think that's been inherent then for the last, 
40, 50 years then in, in, you know, in, with the Industrial Revolution? I do. I think it's been inherent. And that book, by the way, Principles of Scientific Management, Taylor's book, was voted the most influential management leadership book of the 20th century, right? Because it was like, oh, scale, process, industrialization. Now, as we hear this today, we're like, come on, we're more evolved than this. You know, it's 2021. Come on. Here's the thing. You may be evolved in moments, but in those moments of pressure and crisis, you know, when the proverbial stuff hits the fan, mm -hmm. how do you show up? Because in those moments, that's when leadership is tested. So good example of that is how have you managed the coronavirus pandemic with the people you lead? Are you showing up and leaning into being more empathic and caring because, by the way, we're all dealing with a global health crisis and trauma and that people need that extra support? Or even like, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm waiting for senior management to roll something out for this that we can drill down into our people. And by the way, drilling down is a total industrial age metaphor, right? You don't sit here and go, oh, no one's drilled into me lately. I miss that. So we so there are pieces that when we are under pressure, it's so easy to default to, because I'm your boss, just, just do it, because I'm telling you to. So it's a challenge. And obviously, in the last 12 months, I think, you know, the pandemic has certainly tested the metal of leadership. And in some cases, it's proved to be <clears throat> a real blessing and, and enable people to show something that perhaps they didn't realize they had inside them. Yes. Uh, and and in, in other situations, it's been probably dreadful. And there's obviously a continuum of all that. Um, I am aware that there's been a lot more empathy has come through in the last 12 months. Well, that's been forced to because <laughs> that's because everybody's talking yeah. about it. You have to be more empathetic because of the nature of things. But I hope it, it will stay. So how do we take something that has been generationally sort of handed down? And as you say, role modeling is such a powerful thing. And yes. we, we model how we were led to the next generation and, and, and so on and so on. How do we break that? And how do we change it? Because it's not it's not a simple go on a training course here. It's, it's not a, it's it's a whole new mindset and a different perspective. So how do we do that in organizations to yeah. start to change a culture here. Well, Julian, I love what you said about role modeling there. I think it's so, I want to touch on that again because it's so important. It's very, very difficult to start to demonstrate things that you have never actually seen. And so my offer to people who are going, gosh, I don't really have leaders who model this, what we're saying, you know? So go seek out those role models elsewhere. They may not be in your organization, but I mean, you know, in this knowledge work, digital age, there are so many great talks, leaders talking about what they're doing, you know. So, for example, you know, watch some podcasts with Hubert Jolie, who is the CEO of Best Buy. He talks about how he shifted that organization's culture completely by making it more people centered. And here's one of the things he did that you can steal because I have, um, which is really quite simple. If you think about most management meetings, right, the monthly operating report meeting, whatever that might be, some version of that, maybe it's weekly, maybe it's monthly. What do you usually start with? Probably start with, let's go through the performance numbers. Like how are we doing? How sales, how's profit, how's revenue, how's whatever your metrics are. You go into all that. And then you might talk about projects. Okay, here are our projects. Well, here's what we're working on. Here's what's working well, what's not working well. And then if there's a little bit of time left, which usually there's not, because all that stuff will take your time. You might talk about the people and what's going on with your people. Well, Hubert Jolie at Best Buy 
completely flipped that paradigm. They mm. would start their meetings and talk about their people, right? Like, whoa, we never did. What would it be like if we actually gave most of our focus on the people? Because the fact is all those numbers are lagging indicators of the behaviors of the people you're doing. Mm. Sales don't just come out of a spreadsheet. Sales happen because you have a sales force who are closing deals in real time with real people that are real customers. Mm. And so, yeah, you'll get to your numbers, trust me. So a big thing that I coach leaders on is it's about focus and priority, is that how can you stop focusing on the numbers first and instead start focusing on the people because it's your people mm. who deliver those numbers. So something as simple as that, when it comes to empathy, and again, my definition of empathy is really simple. It's showing people that you understand them and care how they feel. Now, as I'm sure you're listening to this, you're thinking, well, that's simple. I mean, I do that. And you do do that in some places in your life. You do it with your family, your friends, your loved ones. It's harder to do it in places where you feel less connected to people, which often think about at work, especially when you feel pressure to deliver on deadlines and you have certain quality expectations of any deliverable. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I coach leaders around is if you want to show people that you understand them and care how they feel, AKA show empathy, you need to slow down, right? Sometimes, not all the time, but you have mm -hmm. to take these moments. So for example, if you have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with somebody, all right, great, Julian, great. So how are things going? Right, we're like, we're, we've jumped into task mode. We're like, da, 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 right? As opposed to, I've got a half an hour meeting with you scheduled. If I take five minutes up front, that meeting, Julian, how are you feeling today? And I just shut up and listen and give you the space because mm -hmm. I have no, I don't need to know. So this is another leadership myth is that somehow we have to be omniscient. I have no idea, but I'm going to ask you and you're going to tell me, how are you feeling today? Mm -hmm. And I can hold space for you. And maybe that takes a minute or two. That is such a valuable investment in time because what it does is it actually calms your central nervous system. So we're talking mm -hmm. about the science here. So the physiology is when someone actually tunes in to what you're doing and saying and asks you how you're feeling, you start to calibrate. And if there's anything, so that's the first question. The second question would be, is there anything distracting you, keeping you from being present? Mm -hmm. Wow. Again, I'm calibrating your nervous system so you can be super focused. And the third question is, is there anything that I can do to support you? Okay. And so by asking those three questions in the first five minutes, now, when we get into the task, you are so much more settled. Mm. I'll give you an example just to bring this to life, because what that does is that creates connection, empathy, and trust. Everyone who's listening to this right now, I want you to think back to some emails that you've written. Have you had to write emails to people where the trust was low and you have spent 20 minutes crafting a two paragraph email and then you've sent it to three other people. Can you read this before I send this out? Cause I'm not sure, how, right? Whereas someone where trust is high, you don't even spell check the damn thing. You just send because you just go, you just, you have that relationship. So part of leadership wisdom is knowing there's a time and a place to go fast and there's a time and a place to go slow. And you have to have the wisdom to know the difference and prioritizing the people first. And then we can, you know, accelerate and then start to perform and deliver whatever results. Look, I get the fact we are not here to sit around and do group therapy. That is not the point of business. Mm -hmm. Like we have products, we have services, we have stakeholders on all facets. And part of it is understanding like being a scientist, what works well. And so business needs to catch up to what science has known for a long time. And there's great research. And it turns out the number one thing 
that influences performance, engagement, and retention is do people feel cared for by their immediate supervisor? That is an incredibly soft and fuzzy thing. And yet it's the number one metric for determining high performance. You said a lot there. And, yeah. um, <laughs> no, no, it's good. It's really good. And it's, in some ways, uh, it, it becomes quite a simple thing, isn't it? Yeah. As in, we're not talking rocket science here. Uh, in terms, I'm not, I'm not belittling what you're saying. In terms of, that it's not that difficult. Um, no. And it's interesting. I used, I used to work for Johnson and Johnson, and I don't know if you know they have a, a credo, uh, like a yeah, like a I know, statement. I, I know what a credo is, but no, I don't know what it is. What yeah, but it's, it's, and, and, it, and it starts with the people first, mm-hmm. and profits last. It's all about they've upside down the whole. We're not about profits, stakeholders. We're about our employees. Uh, and, and it's interesting that that comes through the whole sort of organization, this people focus. And they have this thing about, you know, making sure that our people are our greatest assets and they truly believe that. Mm-hmm. And and what you're saying there is is literally going back to just for the moment, put aside those numbers. Let's get into the people first, understand, show people that they care and understanding and actually, because the, the people are delivering the numbers, the people are doing the tasks that, and I think we get caught up with measuring people. And also in, in a remote world, it's kind of a little bit silly and concerned people. Can they trust people working from home and everything else? Um, and asking people, you know, how are they today? That's that's really, really important. Yeah. So it, it is simplistic. <laughs> and I want to say, how can we help people make that shift, but also make it a thing that it will do consistently where have you experienced where you've once people got the light bulb moment yeah i got it and, and they do it yeah so yes it's simple but it's not easy and the reason it's not easy is because people are notoriously creatures of habit if you think about it we tend to do today what we did yesterday and if it's been working for us and we haven't felt enough of the pain point to switch that wake-up call it's so easy to default to the old behaviors i mean you don't even have to think about work. I mean, just think about how many of us have set a New Year's resolution. I'm going to get healthy and fit this year or whatever that, you know, and they, quickly, you know, two weeks in, you're back to your own patterns. So we have to start shifting patterns. And there's a couple of key things to make this work. Number one is, and this is tough, especially for kind of our Western culture who thinks that it's about willpower and it's up to me to do this. So number one, no, it's not about willpower. Willpower is shockingly overrated is creating habits and one of my i'm a big fan of bj fogg's book tiny habits and his whole philosophy is the goal to start embedding new habits is you have to bring the bar way down so that you can easily achieve it so for example if you want to start flossing your teeth he says just choose to floss one tooth and then here's the key and then celebrate it celebrate your wins um the other thing that we tend to do in our western culture is we tend to isolate and think, oh, this is some kind of moral character failing on me, as opposed to how can I create a community of support where we're all working on this together and we are vulnerable enough to share our successes as well as the times where, you know what, I jumped into task mode there and it's not so good. And so, or someone else can get, hey, Julian, can I give you some feedback? Uh, can we pause for a second? Because we're totally running down here and I'm not really present for this yet. You know, to create that level of honesty. And so it starts by embedding 
micro habits, little bits at a time. And yeah, it certainly helps to have a coach or facilitator structure this for you at the beginning to kind of give you these guardrails to stay within that. Mm. And then hopefully you can start to embed that and internalize these behavioral habits over time that when the guardrails come off, you have your own anchors or we call them in the habit world prompts in place. Like we all have prompts all the time, right? When your phone rings, the ring is a prompt for you to pick up the phone, right? So, um, so we want to build in prompts so we don't have to spend a lot of time thinking about it. So for example, I work with a number of teams where this check-in process I just described of how are you feeling? Is there anything on your mind or distracting you? And how can I support you? It is so embedded. So every time they have a meeting, the first thing they do is, all right, let's check in. And if we don't, it would be like going to bed without brushing your teeth, right? It's like, whoa, that's weird. I, I have to do that. So it's about embedding habits. And, and I work with teams and actually have created a 30-day online leadership challenge to teach these kind of habits for mm -hmm. people because, you know, I can write a book, but I always say like writing a leadership book and people reading a leadership book, it's like reading a book about golf. You know, you can read all day long. It's not going to make you a better golfer until you start applying what you're learning when you're actually on there on the green. Mm. And by the way, I'm not a golfer, but you can use that analogy for anything that's performing. So because it is leadership is a performing art. It's what we say. It's what we do every day. Mm. That's interesting. That the habit that, as in lowering the bar, I really like that. And then celebrating. And we know that just by celebrating creates a sense of uh, internal uh, sort of dopamine and win and, and excites us and therefore we get rewarded and therefore we start to think well hey this is really good and that, and that goes across small wins within your team as well in terms of how you're doing things and it's interesting that that when you talked about the the group sort of almost accountability are you talking that in a context of creating a psychologically safe team that that would do that and feel safe to point out to the leader or to each other in a, in a respectful way or are you talking uh the part of groups within an organization of a similar level or outside of that or, or a mixture of that how, how, how do you see that I, it's a great question yeah absolutely it is about psychologically being safe you know and you know great work amy edmondson's book the fearless organization is a great resource if you want to learn more about psych psychological safety so the question is what does that group need to look like i say ideally it should be more than just you. So starting getting at least one other person. So they have a group of two people. Start small, right? And and it, it can be your intact team. It can be your peer group. It can be multiple levels within an organization of hierarchy. But you need to find a place where people are committed to that key of psychological safety. That is so, so important. Because without that, People feel like they're wearing a mask and not just a literal one for COVID, but they're actually wearing a mask, a psychic mask, and they don't feel they feel, don't feel they can be the fully themselves at work. And that is draining. You know, it's interesting. I think it was Deloitte did a study a few years ago, and this was in the US. 61% of all employees say that they do not feel that they can be fully themselves when they show up to work. I mean, think about that number and think about the energy drain that is, because we all know what that's like when you put on a show, put on that mask, you can't but be a bit disconnected because, you know, there's a certain sense of falseness going on as opposed to, you know, how can I relax and be fully myself? And leaders are the ones who set the tone. And there are things that you can do to create psychological safety. You can draw people out. You can make sure that everyone on your team gets equal amounts of airtime. So if you're on that virtual meeting and you see Julian's been not saying anything, Julian, 
love to hear what you have to say here. How's that? Or if you know that people who are, let's say, extremely introverted or reflective learners, send them the questions in advance because not everyone can think on the fly like this and give you your answers. They need to digest for a mm. while. So starting and, to and just, I'm just on that. Obviously, yeah. we've, yeah. Been re we've been doing remote working now for the last 12 months and who knows what we'll go back to in terms of a hybrid of some form. How do we create that, again, that, not that just psychological safety in that remote sense, but also the that accountability piece. And and, and you, you said a point there about how can we read people? Because it's harder remotely than it is in person. Yeah. So here's my thing about reading people. Uh, if you can't read them, ask them. What can, again, make your implicit explicit. <laughs> so ask them, hey. So you always people, say some things are so obvious. That's brilliant. I love that. Well, <laughs> but this is the thing is so no, many. No, it's, as, I love uh, it. I'm, I read. But I, I, I agree. I agree. But this is the trap that we fall into. I say, take off your superhero cape. Okay, no one, you are the manager, the leader you have, you, yes, but no one is expecting you to suddenly be a mind reader. So for example, we're now working from home. You didn't ask for this pandemic, neither did I. And so ask your people, so talk to me about communication. I mean, and this is the thing, it's like, we feel weird asking it because we've never done it before. It's like, how often should we check in? Like if I, if we check in every day, how is that gonna work for you? You know, um, you know, some people are like, oh my gosh, that would be awesome. And other people, I'm fine, I'm good. We could check in once a week or some people, you know, they want once a month. It looks different for different people, but let's have the conversation and not be, and here's the key thing is we have to enter into this with a coach-like approach of being curious and not somehow judging the outcome. So if somebody says, yeah, I'd love to check in every day, like, oh, you're high maintenance. <laughs> you know, like, we, you know, we don't want to do that. It's just understanding, like, what do you need? What can I do to support you? What is going to support you? Because this is going to be different for different people and different businesses and functions and roles and talents and skills. But don't be the mind reader. Start to figure out and asking people what they need and then see how you can support them. And if you can't support them, then be honest about it. So like, this is what I can do. For, I hear you want to meet twice a day. My bandwidth doesn't support that. However, what I can do is I can meet once a day and you can check in with me on our mm. Slack channel or whatever, is try to find solutions that can support the people that you need. I like that. If you can't read people, ask them. And that's important. And, and it goes back to that, you know, never assume even you are reading somebody or observing something. You don't know what's going on really. Exactly. Until you ask, until you engage, until you get some sort of, conversation going on and i think it's important is to in this time to really keep those conversations going however that's done on a phone zoom whatever's the easiest way even email if it's appropriate um so what would be your last sort of thoughts in terms of as we sort of carry on into this new brave world of post pandemic or whatever you want to call it um to leaders out there what, what, what would be your one sort of big advice to really help sort of navigate the next sort of six, 12 months. Wow, one big advice. Uh, I'll try to keep this short then. So there's a number, and we've touched on a lot of the themes. I think one is a lead, and we could say lead by ask. So we'll call this ABC. Well, it's like, so start asking questions, right? Asking lots of questions and just continually ask because especially when you're at a distance, you don't have any of that in-person vibe picking up on stuff. So you need to be really explicit about asking those questions. Um, and then the next thing would be to be curious. That's the B, be curious, be really curious about what's going on. Have that inquisitive mind. 
um, which is, by the way, I find really challenging to be curious when my back script that's going on through my head is, I'm so busy, I'm so busy. It's really hard to be curious if you have no space for it. If you're mm -hmm. your day, so start to think about creating some spaces, some blocks in your day, so when you're present to other people, you're actually present. Because you know there's a big difference between listening with purpose and listening to speak or to get through this. Mm -hmm. So being curious means being spacious around that. And then the third thing I would say is just communicate more than you think because it's so in the absence of communication and all the science proves this as well is people default to the negative, right? No, like if, if I don't get a reply email, my first thought isn't, oh, I'm sure they're just really busy. My first thought is, why aren't they getting back to me, right? It's, it's, we're wired for negativity. That served mm. our ancestors really well on the savannas. It kept them from getting eaten but it doesn't work so well in our modern world. So we have to work against the negativity bias. So really over communicating. And in all of that, within the ABC of asking questions, being curious and communicating, if I had to put that under one umbrella is lean into being exceedingly human because what we all crave in this high tech age is some high touch. So connection, community, collaboration, be the human leader that you want. Right. And, and be that be that change, because why shouldn't it start with you? Brilliant. That is really good. I really like that. And um, I want to uh, thank you for coming on today and taking your time out and sharing some great insights. I think there's a, an absolute ton of stuff in that sort of half an hour we've spent each with each other. So, yeah, yeah, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. You're most welcome, Julian. Thank you. If you like this episode, then please do subscribe. Do share with your friends and do check out other episodes in the series. If you're looking for support and help in your organisation to create a resilient culture, then please do get in contact with me on julianrobertsconsulting.com. Thank you.